Judges chapter 15. We're going to read verses 9 through 20, but we're going to cover the entire chapter. Judges chapter 15, verse 9 through 20. Starting in verse 9, it says, Then the Philistines went up and pitched in Judah and spread themselves in Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why are you come up against us? And they answered, To bind Samson are we come up, to do to him as he hath done to us. Before I go any further, I want to make sure you captured that. Judah asked the Philistines, 3,000 men of Judah asked 1,000 Philistines, why are you come up against us? And the Philistines said, to bind Samson. Then 3,000 men of Judah went up to the top of the rock, Edom, and said to Samson, Knowest not that the Philistines are rulers over us. They have accepted their bondage. They are talking to the Nazarite who is empowered by God with supernatural physical strength. Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What is this that thou hast done unto us? Samson, why have you put us in this place for us to do what we're about to have to do? And he said unto them, as they did unto me, so have I done unto them. And they said unto him, we are come down to bind thee. See, people in bondage have the audacity not to help others get free, but to bind them also. That we may deliver thee into the hand of the enemy. And Samson said unto them, Swear unto me that you will not fall upon me yourselves. I want to explain that just for a second. Samson wasn't afraid that if I let you tie me up, y'all might kill me. He wasn't saying, before I let you put these ropes on me, please tell me that you're not going to kill me yourself. Because he was worried about what they could do to him. Samson knew what he would have to do to his own people if they wouldn't swear that they wouldn't kill him. Samson wasn't protecting his own life. He was protecting theirs. And Samson said, promise me that if I let you bind me up, that you will not fall upon me yourselves. Next verse. And they spake unto him, saying, No, but we will bind thee fast and deliver, to, deliver thee into their hand. But surely we will not kill you. And they bound him with two new cords and brought him up from the rock. And when he came unto Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him. In other words, they charged him. They, uh, they set out on the attack. They had a bound Samson. They had 1,000 men armed and ready and they shouted out against him. They charged him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that is burnt with fire and his bands loose from off his hands. And he found a new jawbone of an ass and put forth his hand and took it and slew a 1,000 men therewith. And Samson said, with the jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps, with the jaw of an ass have I slain a thousand men. And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking that he cast away the jawbone out of his hand and called that place ramoth Lekith. And he was sore athirst and called on the Lord and said, Thou hast given this great deliverance into the hand of thy servant, and now shall I die for thirst. And fall into the hand of the uncircumcised. But God clave a hollow place that was in the jaw. And there came water thereout. And when he had drunk, his spirit came again. And he revived. Wherefore he called the name thereof in Hakor, 
which is in Lehi unto this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Will you stretch your hands this way? Pray for me as I pray for you. Most wonderful and loving and gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I pray today, God, that you would allow me to decrease, that you might increase. I pray that no man sees or hears from me, but, Lord, that they search your word to hear from you. Let me just be a guide, Lord God, that leads them to you. And I pray today, God, that you would anoint every ear to hear and every mind to understand and every heart to receive what the Spirit of the Lord is speaking unto the church. And may we not only be recipients of your word, but may we become doers of your word also. And we'll give you the praise, the honor, and the glory in Christ's most holy name we pray. And the church says, amen. You may be seated all over the house. As you're seated, look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, I have a bone to pick. The message or the theme of my sermon this morning is a bone to pick. And I want to tell you up front a small disclaimer. Never will I ever tell you to go into the Bible and eisegete anything for your understanding. You say, well, what does eisegete mean? There's a word eisegete and then there's a word exegete. To eisegete means that I, I have in my mind what I want the Bible to say, so I go to the Bible and put my understanding with its scripture. To exegete is to pull from the Bible what the Bible is saying and apply it to my life and allow it to tell me how to live. We have too many people today, too many preachers today, that are eisegeting everything. They are going into the Word with their understanding and with what they want it to say, and then they are telling the world and preaching to the Word and teaching our children what the Bible says to them. But when we ought to be getting up here, letting the Bible tell us what to say to our children, not what we want them to hear, but what God wants them to hear. That is how to exegete the Scriptures. But I do have to tell you this morning that this is going to be a more of an eisegetical message. Not because I am taking my meaning to the Scriptures, but because I'm taking what the Bible, all throughout the Bible, teaches us and then I'm go, taking it to a story in the Bible to give you some understanding. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time teaching you all the ins and outs of this story about Samson, but I'm going to use the story of Samson to teach you the message that the Bible teaches us through many cases in the Bible. But the title of my sermon this morning is A Bone to Pick. Have you ever felt like you had a job to do or a task at hand but you felt that you didn't have the necessary tools to accomplish the job. Or you didn't have what it takes to do what you feel like you're being asked to do. How many in this room by a show of hands has ever been at the place, or if you're online, if you want to just stick a hand on there and let us know, how many of you have ever been at the place where you felt like it could be physical, it could be spiritual, it could be in your everyday work, it could be, uh, in your ministry, it doesn't have to just be spiritual stuff, but in all stages and facets of life, how many has ever felt like you were placed at a position or had a job or a task to do, but you felt inadequate to accomplish it? Amen. We got some honest folks in the house this morning. Thank you. Most of us at some point have felt this way, and it leads me to my next question. What do we do when we don't have the tools that we think is necessary to finish the job. What do we do when we feel like we don't have what it takes to do it? A lot of times people don't do it. A lot of times people just don't finish the job. A lot of times people sit back and say, well, somebody else will get it. And that goes with not just in the spiritual walk. There's people on your job. You're tired of going behind because they should have already had stuff done, and you're having to go behind them and do stuff because something in their mind said, ah, somebody else will get it. There's things going on in your family. There's things going on around. Oh, somebody else will get it. 
when, when, when daddy's passed away and mama's then got old and feeble and they got a bunch of children, all the children had the same mama. But for some reason, everybody sitting back saying, oh, one of them will step up and take care of her. I know ain't none of y'all ever been there. But in the real world, it happens like that. First of all, I need you to know that as followers of Christ this morning, it is imperative that we contend for the faith. The Bible says in Jude 3 and 3, tells us to contend for the faith. How many understand that if you want to be faithful, you're going to have to be a contender? You can't be somebody that just sits back and lets somebody else take care of it and feel like at the end of your life, you're going to be this faithful uh, this faithful Nazarite or this faithful pastor or this faithful teacher or this faithful business owner and you've spent your whole life letting other people get it done. As followers of, a, of, of, of Christ, it is imperative that we know that we have to contend for the faith because the enemy is out to disprove your faith every day of your life, not just to your viewers, not just to your congregants, not just to those that are watching you, but if you let him stay around long enough, he will even have you questioning your own faith. He will have you questioning your own faith, making you feel inadequate to tell somebody about Jesus Christ. What about all you've done? How are you going to tell this person how to live right and you haven't lived right? How are you going to tell this person Jesus loves them and they just lost a loved one? How can you tell them that Jesus has peace that passeth all understanding and these people are so lost and confused and battered right now? How can you tell them that Jesus, all you got to do is sing in the midnight hour and the jails are going to open up and you got somebody that's addicted and been trying to go every avenue and every route, done spent every dime they had trying to get help, and here they are sitting in the back with the same issue of blood for 12 years. How can you tell somebody that Jesus is a healer. And he wants you to question your own faith. That's why you have to be a contender. How do I contend for my faith? How do I contend for my faith? It ain't by just getting up and saying, I have faith. That's kind of like me standing up here today and saying, I have a million dollars. Just don't go check my bank account. Don't go look at the fruit of where that promise should say I got it. There's a lot of people that stand up and say, I have faith until they are required to have faith. I've got faith that God can do it until it's time for God to have to do it. i got faith that if I start this ministry, God's going to open every door, and then here you are three months, ain't been asked to preach nowhere. I've been there. Three and a half years as an evangelist, serving as an associate pastor, preaching at least once every week, if not a revival every week, all over churches in South Georgia. My, me and my dad rode four hours to go turkey hunting Friday and come home Saturday, passing by cities and counties that I preached many revivals in and many services in. And then there came a time in my life when I was an associate pastor. I did not know that just a little ways ahead, there was going to be an opportunity for Josh to step into his calling to be a lead pastor. I was so consumed with, I just want to preach. I need people to hear me preach. I love what it feels like when I get to preach. And, and I went from preaching every single week to almost three months not getting asked to preach one time. And you know what I didn't do? I didn't go to the campgrounds and hand every pastor a business card. I didn't harass every pastor that I knew and saying, I feel like God wants me to preach. Can you give me an offering? Never one time in three and a half years as an evangelist did I ever. If I ever gave out a card, it was me talking to the preacher for his needs. It was me saying, hey, if you ever need somebody to talk to, I'll be glad. This ain't for you to book me for a revival. This is, I'm here for you too, not just your church, not just for your check. I'm here for you too. For three and a half years, I got to preach, and I didn't have to beg for it. People just opened the door and let me come preach. But then, here I am as an associate pastor. With the agreement that if I had the opportunity to go evangelize, I was at liberty to do so. But for three months, I wasn't asked to preach in my home church. I wasn't asked to preach in anybody else's church. I can't remember, but I might have not even been asked to preach in my home. And it, it drove me crazy. And I started, even, I started questioning my call. I started questioning my faith. I started, now I, didn't have, I, didn't, I wasn't questioning my faith on whether I believed Jesus was real, but I was questioning my faith enough to where it was putting a halt on me, not just, yeah, if I had died, I would have went to heaven because I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. But guess what? 
I wasn't just called to go to heaven. I was called to preach the gospel and to teach the commandments and to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And I was led, I was called to lead people to, to the cross of Calvary where the blood of Jesus shall cleanse them from all unrighteousness. I wasn't just called just to get saved and go do my own thing and be my own man. I was called to become a servant to all. I was, I was called to become all things to all men that I might save some. I was called to be a servant. I was called to be a leader. I was called to be someone that has to sit in the back on days. I was called to someone that has to take charge on some days. But whatever needed to be done, I was expected to answer the call. But here I am questioning my call, questioning my faith in who I'm supposed to be, who Jesus created me to be. And then I got to a dark place in my life, and I finally went and talked to my pastor, and we had an all-out prayer meeting in his living room. And I finally understood what Jude 3 and 3 meant. Contend for your faith. See, the enemy was trying to take what God was promoting me to and, and preparing me for and trying to use it as something that I was weak and broken at. He was trying to take, you thought you was a preacher. You thought you were called to do this. You thought people wanted you around. But here you are three months in silence, not doing anything. And sometimes the silent moments of your life are the most powerful moments if you'll allow them to do so. And that three months of silence and not being able to preach I got to praying and fasting like I hadn't done in years. I got to fasting and pray. And then the next time I was asked to preach, I was preaching at a church on a Sunday morning in Ellabelle, Georgia. And God moved and showed up. We had an awesome time in God. Altars were full. People were saved, set free. And I got out of church and my phone rang. And it was David Price from the state office. And I answered that. He said, Brother Josh, he said, your name, up, name has come up in conversation. We have a church available seeking a lead pastor in Albany, Georgia. Would you consider prayerfully consider putting your name in the hat, going and trying out, getting a feel for it, and praying to see if God wants you there. And I went and I was the first person to go. And I went and I preached. Three weeks later, multiple people had come through that church. And they called me back after the third week and said, Brother Josh, if you still want it, you got 100% of the vote. And I went and became a lead pastor of the first church I would ever pastor which set the stage for me to come to Northwoods Church. I said all that to say this. Contending for your faith is going to take not just waiting till all the tools are available, not just waiting till everything is there, but becoming proficient, efficient, and effective with such things as you have. In other words, stop waiting for the church to get full. Stop waiting for the bank account to get full. Stop waiting for everything saying, okay, now I'm ready to step out on faith. You can't wait until everything's in store or you'll never get there. You'll never start. You've got to get to the place where you're fighting and you're praying and you're warring and you're grabbing whatever's available to use and moving into the place where God has called you to be. There are some of the greatest women of God, some of the greatest ministers of the gospel, some of the greatest men of God, some of the greatest songwriters are still sitting on pews feeling inadequate and never wrote their first sermon or never wrote their first song or never wrote their first book because they're sitting back feeling inadequate saying well when everything gets right then I'll start and, I, and that's the bone that I have to pick today is we have to quit saying we're people of faith while at the same time saying God if I'm supposed to do this you're going to have to put I'm going to have to put six fleeces out and you're going to have to put mist on all of them and then you're going to have to open the waters. And then you're going to have to build my boat. We are standing on a shovel praying for God to dig a hole. If you pray for a hole and God gives you a shovel, he answered your prayers. Because there's a point in your calling and in your ministry that you're going to have to use what you got to get accomplished what's at hand. He's not going to do everything for us. He's a good, good father. A good father don't do everything for his children. And then when his children get out in the real world, they fall on their face because, Daddy, why didn't you ever tell me that I was going to have to pay a light bill? Why didn't you ever tell me that checks don't just come in the mail? Why didn't you ever tell me that Uncle Sam wasn't just going to put an allowance in my ch checking account every week? Why didn't you ever tell me that when I would come home from school that that grass didn't just fall over pretty like it was in rows? Somebody cut it that way. But they get out. And they get delusional about how the world really works. 
But God is a good, good father. So first off, you have to contend for your faith, by which through this, according to Ephesians 2 and 8, it is through faith that we are saved by grace. Everybody wants to say you're saved by grace, and you are. But it is through faith that you are saved by grace. Without faith, you can't understand grace. It's there, but you don't understand it. You can't receive it. You don't know how to receive it. That's the problem with the world. It's not that people just are rebelling and don't want to be saved. People aren't willing to be faithful so that grace may flow in their life. It's free. It's there. They don't have to do anything but believe it. But to believe means to have faith. The Bible says it is impossible to please God without faith. Do you think it is unpleasing to God for a person to get saved? Think about that. Do you think that anybody has ever gotten saved and it, um, it wasn't pleasing to God? So do you think there's anybody that's ever got saved without faith? Because without faith, it is, it is impossible to please God. Which means grace that I'm saved by comes through a doorway called faith. Faith is something that i got to contend for. Because if my faith gets weak, then I'm going to miss out on the flow of my grace. That when the world says you ought to be angry, for some reason I feel a reason to shout and praise the Lord. When the world says you're about to lose everything, for some reason I feel like I just got everything. When, when, the, when the world feels like you ought to give up and throw in the towel, for some reason I feel like this is the time to, to, to call in the marching band and to walk through the streets and parade myself because God is about to do something bigger than me and bigger than you. Having faith to know that Christ is our provider and knows our needs even before we ask. We won't always know where it's going to come from. I want to be the, if I ain't the first one to tell you, I want to try to be the first one to tell you. Sometimes God's going to call you to places and he's not going to show you where your provision's coming from. He's not going to show you by who your provision is coming from. He's not even going to show you when your provision's going to come. But how many understand, has ever read the story of Lazarus, God has never been late a day in his life. If you'd have just been here earlier, Jesus, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, oh, you just don't know the God I serve. You don't know my father like you think you do. Your faith ain't as big as you thought it was. Because when I'm four days late, I'm still on time. Never in all of history, in all of time, has Jesus ever been late. As a matter of fact, the Bible doesn't tell us that Jesus had to be crucified because of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. It says he was the lamb slain from the foundations of this world. He already had a plan of failure when Failure wasn't even in the picture yet. He already had a plan for your victory before the battle ever showed up. He already had a plan for your success before you felt like a failure. That's the first of all. Now the second of all, we have to realize that if we wait until all the stars line up. If you've ever been in a business, if you've ever been, you know, if you have a early part of my life, I remember working, and my, me and my wife and I, we worked check to check. I remember we had to go to the checkbook. I got a video of me and Jaden at the house in Columbus, Georgia. Jaden is drinking some ranch dressing out of a heart's chicken cup. Drinking ranch dressing. But I remember that day so vividly because I know how blessed I really am. Because I do remember a time in my life, I remember that day. I had to call my wife and get her to look at the checkbook to see if we could go get Hart's chicken for lunch. Living check to check. And you know, there had to be some wisdom in that. Every day we had a little extra money. We didn't go to Hart's chicken. Every day we had a little bit of extra money. We didn't, you know, there's a lot of people. You give them, you give them a $1,000 stimulus check, and they're going to figure out how to spend $999.99. You give a lot of churches a big offering, and guess what? They're going to find out how to spend that offering. If you, and the, the very few people have wisdom in this doing so. So we have to realize that there are going to come times, whether you live check to check or whether you are financially stable, it don't matter what your greatest strengths are, there's always going to be a weakness in your life that if you ain't careful, it will limit your strength as being as powerful as it is. If you don't believe me, ask the man we're talking about, Samson. The Bible said he was a Nazarite. He was a miracle baby. His, the Bible speaks of his father, names his father, but it doesn't name his mother. It only tells us that his mother was barren. And it says that an angelic movement happened, and it came to this woman and said, you are going to bear a son, but your son, it ain't going to be just any regular son. 
It's gonna, your son's going to be a Nazarite. Now, just to be a Nazarite wasn't because you was born in Nazareth. It wasn't just because you had a Nazarene bloodline. To be a Nazarite simply means to be set apart. So there were some restrictions that came with Samson's birth. These restrictions were, were things like, be careful what you eat, pregnant with this baby. Be careful what you drink while you're pregnant with this baby. And then the last thing for a Nazarite is a razor shall never come upon his head. All right? So you got Samson. The Bible tells us, we know the story. If you've been in Sunday school or you've been in church more than 36 minutes, you've heard it. Samson was the strongest man physically to ever walk in the world. This man had supernatural strength. This man's so strong that a lion come out, and he's angry. He just beats the snot out of a lion, kills him right there. And after he's done beating up the lion, a little while later he comes back, and he feeds from the lion because there's a honeycomb inside, which tells me he didn't just thump him in the head and he died. He slaughtered that lion so much that bees had an open cavity to go up in and build an entire comb. I'm trying to stay PG-13 here, but, you know, he opened the lion up. That's the kind of strength we're dealing with. The same man that we just read took a jawbone of a donkey and slaughtered a thousand men. So he wasn't just strong in strength. He was strong in style and technique. Because I don't care how strong you are. You ever watched, I, my, I grew up and going to my grandma's house. She loved Walker, Texas Ranger. She was going to marry Chuck Norris. And I think today Chuck Norris is still as young as he was 25 years ago. I don't think he's ever got older. But I remember watching that show and I'd get so mad. There's seven people around Chuck Norris. And he has got the slowest roundhouse kick known to man. You see that thing coming from a mile away. He's like. And you're like, the other six dudes are just going to stand there and wait for this three-chapter roundhouse kick to come to pass on this one dude and then the next guy's going to step up? No, common sense says, you got six, seven men there. Why don't they all just bombard him? I don't care how good his roundhouse kick. They say Chuck Norris so good he can run around the world and kick himself in the back. But six men, you can stop it. You can, you can defeat him. All right? You, you can beat him. And I used to get so angry watching that. If these men charged him all at one time while he starts that slow roundhouse kick, somebody ought to kick him in his kneecap while another one pushes him at his shoulder and another one bulldozes him and tackles him. And before you know it, he's on the ground with three men and there's three free men that can just stomp the life out of him. But it never played out like that. But in real life, 1,000 men on one man, I don't care if he got a sword, a jawbone of a donkey, he could even have a 9 millimeter. You ain't got but so many rounds. And if they all keep coming sooner or later, if they all jump on you at one time, something's got to happen. Something's gotta so this man had the jawbone of a donkey. And not only was he strong enough, but he was fast enough. He had the technique. He was more like a Bruce Lee movie. See, Bruce Lee be hitting this guy and kicking this guy at the same time while elbowing this one and got this one over here in a leg lock. He, it's more realistic. Like, okay, he, he's done figured out how to fight multiple people. And, and that's what Samson would have had to do. He, he, he probably looked like the, 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 the was it Rafiki or on, on, on the Lion King, the, 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 the baboon that was fighting them hyenas. He's like, pa, 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 pa. He had to be multitasking at one time. So not only was he strong, he was also wise enough on how to use his strength. But we know the story of Samson. You know, we all go to the Bible and get our names for our kids. How many little girls you ever met named Delilah or Jezebel? Come here, little Ahab. They want a play date with you, Ahab. Come on. Come here, Judas. Don't nobody want to curse their youngin' like that. So we know this Delilah. And she found out Samson's weakness. 
Actually, the Philistines found out Samson's weakness. Everybody thinks that Delilah did, but it wasn't Delilah. It was the Philistines. Because you know what Samson's real weakness was? See, when you cut his hair, he lost his physical strength. But his real weakness wasn't his physical strength. His real weakness wasn't his hair. His real weakness was his lust for women. And they knew that if they could get Delilah, who would betray him, to get him so in love that he'd tell her anything. So his greatest strength was limited by his greatest weakness. When we are waiting for everything to line up, it doesn't matter how good of a business person you are, how good of a husband you are, how good of a pastor you are. If you don't know how to contain and override your weakness, you could be setting yourself up for a greater fall later. So we, we can't just sit around. Samson didn't just sit around and say, well, if the stars line up all the way through space in one line, I'll know God wants me to do something. No, Samson was frustrated. Let me give you just a little bit of the story of Samson just in Judges 15. If you want to go read uh, about Samson, go to Judges 13 through 16. You'll see his whole life. But just to what we cover in Judges 15. First off, he marries this woman that he shouldn't have married. It ain't Delilah, by the way. You go look at the story of Samson, he's always messing with the wrong woman. But he marries a woman he shouldn't have married. Well, the daddy, the father, Samson's father-in-law, says, well, this ain't relationship ain't going to work. <coughs> so I know, I, get, I know you're married to Samson, but I'm going to give you to another man. So Samson comes home one day and wants to go to his wife and says, I'm going to go lay with my wife. And father-in-law's like, hold up, Samson. I didn't think you liked her, man. I, I didn't gave her to another man. And it made him so mad. It made him angry. Let me see if I still got the word on here I was going to share with y'all. Uh, give you a little teaching. Lex Talianus, if I'm saying that correctly. It is a law that was put in place. You, you know the law we have in Exodus, eye for an eye? It was basically a law put into place that fits the crime. In other words, if you stole $100, you repay $100. It was eye for an eye. In other words, if you poke my eye out, I don't get to cut your head off. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It was, it was a law put in place to make punishment fair to those that wouldn't follow the rules. The law that protected the criminal. You see what I'm saying? That law is not in place to give, to give the righteous one a right to go poke somebody's eye out. That law was put in place that says if you take the eye, then it's going to cost you the eye. Some people, even in, uh, even in the Middle East to this day, still take that law so literal that if you steal something, they cut your hand off. But it was more along the lines, like when we was in Afghanistan, if you mess around and kill a child while serving, my dad could tell you a story of one of their gunners that accidentally shot over the test fire berm and hit an eight-year-old kid in the head, killed him. He didn't do it. It was a gunner in there company they gave him some rice and some goats and it was they shook hands that was the law the law says you repay me for what you took from me they were poor so rice was a whole lot it didn't give him back his eight-year-old son but it fed the rest of his family for a while he was good with that just trying to give you a, a visual and understanding of what this is samson didn't play by those rules samson was the kind of guy you give my wife away I'm going to go out here and I'm going to catch 300 foxes. And I'm going to bind a stick and tie two of them by the pairs. I'm going to tie their tails together. And I'm going to light that stick on fire. And then I'm going to chase them through the, through the wheat fields. In one moment of anger, Samson destroyed their economy for an entire year. He, he, he chased these foxes through the field. 
and it burned up not only their fields, but he chased them into the vineyards. He chased them all through there, and it burned up everything they had. That's why the Philistines are mad. See, the enemy don't care nothing about who your wife is messing with or who your husband's messing with. The enemy don't care nothing about that. But when you start touching the politicians' money and you start touching the politicians' uh, uh, finances and you start touching their economy and it starts blemishing, now they want to get involved. They don't care that your church is falling apart. They don't care that, 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 you, that you're getting abused by the, by the community as long as you don't mess with the economy. Samson messed with the economy. So they, they come together and, and he, he, he goes... The, the Philistines go and they take the father-in-law. They find out who this man is. They get the father-in-law and the wife, and they burn them, burn them alive. Now, that really ticked Samson off. He said, just as they've done unto me, I'm going to do it to them. So these, Israel, or these Philistines come into these men of Judah and tell them, go get Samson, bring him back bound so we can kill him. Because the Philistines were smart enough to know they can't just go in there blindly and just think they're just going to take Samson. They knew his strength, so they knew they had to have some kind of a plan in place. And they go to the men of Judah. Why do you think that? And, and I can't plainly tell you this, but I can tell you what I do think. I believe that the Philistines knew enough loyalty from Samson that maybe he wasn't loyal to his purpose. Maybe he wasn't loyal to his strength. Maybe he wasn't loyal to all he could have been. But there's one thing. He is loyal to his people. And he is not going to hurt those men of Judah. So we'll send them to go chain him up and tie him up. Why does the enemy feel comfortable coming to your people telling them how to bind you? Have you ever heard that saying that says, it ain't so much about what people say about you. It's why do they feel comfortable saying it about you, about me to you? Why does someone feel comfortable to gossip about me to you? Or why does someone feel comfortable to gossip about you to me? What in me tells them it's okay to gossip about someone? That's the question the, the men of Judah should have been answering. What tells these, these people that I will betray my own man, this own man that was given to us by God, this man that was a miraculous power from God through an angelic visitation, through a barren womb, and he's here today. He, he's strong. He's mighty. He's done ripped up a lion with his bare hands. What makes them think I'll betray him? And then we find out. The Philistines asked those men, they said, go up there and get Samson. These 3,000 men go up to eat him, and they say, Samson, why have you done this to us? Samson's like, what you talking about, man? We have to bind you up. Samson knew if I don't let them guys bind me up, they're either going to have to try to force themselves, which will cause me be, to be forced to hurt my own people, or they're going to have to go back and tell the Philistines that they couldn't do it, and then out of anger, they're going to punish the men of Judah. So Samson says, I'll tell you what. Swear to me that if I let you tie me up, you won't kill me. Deal. We will not kill you. But we will bind you up and we will take you to them. See, the enemy is all about binding. We hear about the yoke of bondage and and being bound with sin, and being bound, and bound, and bound, and bound. And that's why he said, in whom the Son sets free, shall be free indeed. But when you have people that are living in bondage, the enemy ain't just after their bondage, just like God wants to network us, and he wants to, he wants to reach one person, so this person will reach two people, and those two people will reach four people. He wants to send them out two by two so they'll turn the world upside down. He wants to pick out 12, but he wants to utilize three, and then those three are going to speak to the other nine, and those nine are going to develop and grow, and before you know it, you got 70 elders, and you got 70 people going out and doing, and it grows. The enemy works the same way. If I can bind one and make him work under fear, he will bind others. They told Samson, the Philistines, whom we are bound by, whom has control over us, have sent us to bind you. 
if you don't, if you think it's just a coincidence that our nation is in the turmoil in this day, for years and years, all the way back, this whole LGBT movement, this whole uh, identity crisis, and not knowing if you were a boy or a girl, all this stuff didn't just happen. For years, there was a time when we knew the phrase of coming out of the closet because they were always that way, but they were in a closet. They were scared to come out and come forth and come and be open and flamboyant with it. But the longer that it existed, the more bound they become till one day someone starts stepping out and giving pride to that thought and pride to that idea and pride to that situation. And before you know it, this pride became a movement. And now the movement is not just happy. Going, there are such things, and I'm not, I'm not telling you they're good churches. I'm going to use quotation, but there are such things as gay churches. If you are going to be that way and you refuse to hear the truth, there are churches out there for you. Why is it necessary to make a crisis? In a God-believing, Jesus Christ-serving, Holy Bible-deliverance ministry, how is it, how, why is it so feasible for people to come in and say, I want you to accept my beliefs? If I come to your house and your rule is take your shoes off at the door, just because at my house, and I got 13 kids, five dogs, and mud all around my house, and they just run through the house at 150 miles per hour, and the door never stays closed, and there's dirt and grass, and you can't tell the difference from the yard and the floor in the house. And I'm used to that. Just because the rule at my house might be just walk through the house like you It's not that way, but my kids think it is. Just walk through the house like you want to. But if that's the rule at my house and I come to your house, what would you think about me? If I walked and said, no, it's all right, this is what we do at my house, and I just walk through, wipe my feet on your $1,200 rug, don't even let the seat up in the bathroom, and walk in there and kick my feet up in your brand new Lazy Boy with my dirty boots on. I probably would have never made it to the bathroom. You probably would have had me by the collar of my shirt kicking me out because why? It, it don't, you do what you want to with your house, but don't bring your rules to my house. My house, my rules. But we're living in a day where people that are bound are not just satisfied being bound, but now they have set out to try to bind all the Samson's, all the God-fearing men and God-fearing women and put fear in their lives. If you don't, I want you to go to churches and I want you to force them to marry you. I don't care if you're two men or you're two women. I don't care if you want to be a boy and you was born a girl. You can be whatever you want to be. Go make these churches accept it. And I'm not trying to get all political, but I'm also not going to be ignorant and, 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 and stay away from the sensitive subjects. That's just not the pastor you got. I believe on calling sin, sin. The Bible says, when we, woe to them who come in that day that would call good evil and evil good. I believe, listen, God don't hate a single homosexual. God don't hate a single boy that don't know how to stay a boy. God don't hate a little girl that don't know she's a girl. God don't hate any sinner. God don't hate a child molester. Every one of them have the same ability for redemption that I have. But if I don't tell them about redemption and I don't tell them what they have to escape from, then they're going to keep walking around bound trying to bind other people. The problem is, is we're isogeting things and we're putting our beliefs with the Bible and telling them that they've got to accept this and swallow this or they hate. And how can you be a hateful Christian? God don't hate any sinner. He hates sin. The Bible says he cannot even look upon sin. That is why I believe when the Bible says even though God was ordained or Samson was ordained by God, you don't read where he was baptized in the Holy Ghost. You just see where the Holy Spirit came upon him in the moments. But now we live in a day where we can be baptized in the Holy Ghost, where we can wake up in the Holy Ghost, go to bed in the Holy Ghost. We can go out to eat in the Holy Ghost. We can go to work in the Holy Ghost because wherever we go, that Holy Ghost lives inside of us. He no longer lives behind a curtain. He no longer lives behind a box. And the enemy is on a, on a journey now to try to bind everyone that is walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. I know this isn't popular, but it's like, Creed Fisher says, the truth don't sell these days. So these 300 men of Judah, fearful of a 1,000, these men had the Philistines outnumbered 3 to 1. 
3,000 men of Judah, 1,000 Philistines. Do you realize just how, the enemy won't just make you look weak, he'll make you look ridiculous. 3,000 men, you're like, we're up here because the Philistines are mad. There's three of y'all to every one of them. If three of y'all, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there ain't y'all supposed to be people of praise? Ain't y'all from a tribe of worship? You got Samson over here from the tribe of Dan. He's a Nazarite. He's sitting here looking at a whole tribe of people that are supposed to be birthed in worship. They're supposed to be thriving in worship. They're supposed to be walking around in the good, the bad, and the ugly, talking about what a mighty God we serve. Instead, they're walking around. We're bound by them, Samson, and now we got to bind you. Samson says, all right, bind me, but make sure you don't try to kill me. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Bible says the Holy Spirit will lift up a standard against him. As I get ready to close and the musicians want to start making their way back this way, the Bible says that they brought him down to Lehi. And when the Philistines looked out there and they saw Samson bound up, they shouted against him. They charged him, swords drawn, armor ready. They went after Samson. They were finally fixing to kill the one they feared. 3,000 men feared 1,000 men, but 1,000 men feared one man. And they finally see a way to get rid of him, and they're running down the hill at him. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit of God came over Samson like flax in a fire. The ropes fell from his wrist. Can you imagine being a Philistine that day? You, you the man up front. You the, you the point man. And you running. Ah, ah, I'm going to be known as the guy that got him first. Ah, ah. And you see this man go. I'll bet that pivot man, that man, that point man became a pivot man. He just got pushed up there and he was just trying to hold back. When this big massive beast of a man that's done done all these works stands up. And the Bible says that Samson looked around. Remember I told you he had a bone to pick. He looked around. He didn't have a sword to finish the job. I believe if he would have had a sword, he would have used the sword. I believe if he would have had an Uzi, he'd have picked up the Uzi. But he didn't. The Bible says, and if you go study Lehi, there was many dead carcasses there. It was a place of bones. It was a place of death. And then he was there, and this, this, he looks over here, and he sees this fresh, dead donkey. It hadn't been dead too long, but it was dead long enough he could reach the jawbone. And he reaches over there and he dra- grabs the jawbone of a dead donkey. He didn't grab some old bitter, uh, brittle, dead, brittle dead thing. He didn't just reach over there and grab just anything. He used what was feasible and what he had. He didn't sit there and say, God, how am I going to do this? I don't have everything I need. God, you hadn't gave me the ABC step plan to success. God, you didn't give me the 12-step chip. God, you didn't do this and do that. You didn't send me through my weekend of glory. You didn't do this and do that. No, he just looked around and said, all right, I know if God put me here, he provided. Now I got to use some wisdom and say, what did he provide me with? He reaches over there and he grabs the jawbone of a freshly killed or a freshly dead donkey and the Bible says he began slaying Philistines and then later Samson has a little riddle or a little song or a little cliche he said with the jawbone of an ass heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of an ass then he takes the old dead jawbone and he cast it away the Holy Ghost had came upon him he had served his purpose and his call the Holy Spirit that moved in him caused him to build a mountain of Philistines and if you'll go study that word it's hard to pronounce let me find it Ramathaki it means the height of a jawbone stacked them heaps upon heaps with just a jawbone. If God can do that with just a jawbone, what can he do with my next step in life? 
The Bible says he threw the old jawbone away. I preached a message from the same text a while back, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but I am going to remind you of something I said. Realize something. And we've been very guilty of it over the last 40, 50 years. When the jawbone is what we used, the jawbone ends up with all the glory. You got to get to a place where you realize it was the God in me that made the jawbone effective. You can have all the tools and songs you want. You can have the best preacher you want. But if it's not effective, it ain't got God in it, it ain't no different than the world. He threw the jawbone away when he was accomplished, when he had accomplished what he was sent to do. He threw the jawbone away. That's not to say there's a reason we still read about the jawbone because God used a dead jawbone in the hands of a mighty man and it caused victory to, to come out and to flourish. But he didn't hold on to the jawbone that 10 years later they'd be standing in a church somewhere saying, Preacher, if you don't put a jawbone on this church, then you're not going to be saved. Preacher, if we don't have jawbones on our picture frames, then we ain't going to be holy and righteous. Because you know how God used that jawbone. If we don't put jawbones on our steeples, we ain't going to be saved. Preacher, if you don't sing that song about the jawbone, it ain't going to work. And we've been living this for the last 50, 60, 70 years. We've been holding on to the jawbone, giving all the glory to the jawbone. Preacher, if you'll sing that song that worked in, 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 in over there in, in Azusa Street, then we'll be saved, Lord. Preacher, if you'll preach that message that TDJ's preached, if you'll preach that message that, that, that YouTube preacher preached, and we're giving all the glory to the tool and not to the one that made the tool acceptable. Not any ordinary man would have never been able to pick up that jawbone and accomplish what Samson accomplished. The reason Samson was able to use the jawbone was because it was fresh. It was, it, was, it was a challenge, but it was fresh. He held on to it, and God performed the work. That's why the story is not about the jawbone. It's about what God, the Holy Spirit, that came upon Samson. We spend more time on the jawbones of the church than we do on the Holy Spirit that fell. The Holy Spirit fell on Samson. That's what made the difference. It wasn't the jawbone. It was the Holy Spirit. So I don't care if you got a red back hymnal. I don't care if you got pictures on the wall. I don't care if it's, if it's high strung or low strung. If you've got a faith inside of you that says God is able to move and you've been touched by the Holy Spirit, you can pick up the jawbone. You can pick up the sword. It don't matter. God is able. It wasn't over with yet. Will you stand all over the house? This is how we're going to close. The Bible says he threw the jawbone away. Something that I have learned as being a, a, a pastor, especially as an evangelist, when I preach four, five, six nights in a row, you get done preaching and everybody else is on fire. You want to go eat, preacher? You want to come over here to my birthday party? Come watch the game. And you like this. Yeah, we'll do it. Let me tell you something about ministry. If you don't know this already, ministry will exhaust you. Ministry will exhaust you. You don't believe me? Go ask Elisha or Elijah. He just called down fire from heaven and destroyed the prophets of Baal. Now he's running from one woman. Exhausted. Tired. Weary. When he got done beating them Philistines, the Bible says that he was tired and thirsty. He asked God this question. He said, Lord, surely you didn't bring me out here to fight. Surely you didn't give me the power of your Holy Spirit to fight, to kill a thousand Philistines and then to me to sit back and die with thirst. And fall into the hands of the Philistines or the uncircumcised. And the Bible said, God, at that point, remember that old jawbone. And from that hollow in the bone, he brought forth water. See, it reminds me of when the Israelites were tired and thirsty from their journey in the wilderness. Moses struck the rock. And it brought forth water. It reminds me of the woman at the well that keeps coming up these last few weeks. 
When he says the water that I shall give you, if you drink of it, you'll never thirst. Jesus of Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazarene? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Jesus says, I am the water. I am the water. We've all been at that place in our walk and with our life and in our walk with God where we felt surrounded by the enemy. We feel like there's a nudge to do something. We feel like we're being called, but we don't have enough of the answers to move yet. We don't have enough of the answers to have faith yet. And the whole time, your answer is sitting in the jaw of a donkey right here. Your answer is sitting in the bottom of a cruise of oil in a barrel of meal. Your answer is sitting in an ounce of obedience and an ounce of faith and an ounce of joy and an ounce of peace and an ounce of understanding and an ounce of radical change. But we got to get to the place where we are willing to allow what is available to replenish and refresh. See, God don't need what we think we need. God can bring water out of a rock. He can bring water out of a jawbone. He can bring revival through a valley of dry bones. He can make an axe head float. And that's what a lot of people are at. They're like Elijah down there on that, at the school of the prophets. And that man's over there cutting and his, and his cutting edge flies into the water. And we're sitting there wondering, how, 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 what are we going to do, what are we going to do? We're watching our vision sink to the bottom of a murky river. We're, we're watching our dreams, our hopes. We're, we're, we're watching our calling get away from us. And God said, all you need is a couple sticks to throw in the water. All you need is a couple sticks. That's what Elijah did. He takes some sticks, throws them in the water, and the Bible said, and the axe head did float. Did you bring me out here to... Let me accomplish all this and then just let me die in shame. God said, no. But that same jawbone that I just allowed you to use to slaughter the army before you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revitalize you through it. What was once a weapon for your victory is now a revival for your strength. In other words, Anytime I get weary in my walk with God now, I can go back to the jawbone. When I fought at that altar that day and I, I slaughtered my life, I slaughtered who I was, I slaughtered my pride, I slaughtered my infirmities, I slaughtered my iniquities with the blood of Jesus Christ. Every time I get weak and weary now, I can go back and God's got the water flowing in the same place that I was once redeemed and set free at. So if you haven't heard anything I've said this morning, let me end by telling you this. It doesn't matter what you got before you. It matters who you got in you. If the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that got on Samson, the same Holy Spirit that, that, that got in that fight, the same Holy Spirit that raised God from the dead, the Bible says, shall also quicken your mortal bodies. Romans chapter 8. If you believe, that same Holy Spirit shall also quicken your mortal bodies. When you're weak, when you're weary, when you're tired. My question to you now, what are you going to do when you feel like you ain't got no tools? When you feel like you don't have what it takes? When you feel like you, you can't accomplish what you've been set out to accomplish? When you feel like you can't be what God's called you to be? When you can't be what your kids need you to be? When you can't be what your job's calling you to be? You have what it takes because you have the Holy Spirit. So I'm about to pray, and I'm going to let them begin to worship. And I just want you to take a few minutes. If you want to come down to these altars, you can come down to these altars. If you want to dance, you can dance. If you want to clap, you can clap. But I just want to take a few moments and just glorify God, letting him know, Lord, the bone is enough. The bone that I, you've given me is enough. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, amen. Sometimes Some of you need to remember the woman standing beside you is the bone he gave you. Some of us need to understand, amen. It, it, it's, it's the strength in the bone. It's the marrow in the bone. It's the nutrients in the bone of everything we got that gives it quality. It isn't about 
It's not about having all the tools you think you ought to have. It's being able to work effectively and efficiently with the tools you have. The Bible says be content with such things as you have. If I can find you faithful in the bones, you might as well get ready. God's going to bring the arsenal. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning, God. I pray, oh God, that in the next few moments of worship, and we close in worship, as we pray, as we sing aloud, as we dance, whatever we do, Lord God, we do it for you, knowing, God, that there's not, a bound, uh, uh, there's, not a, there's not an enemy that can bind us today because we are loosed by your Spirit, God. That there's not an iniquity that can hold us back any longer because we've been redeemed. There's not an infirmity that has control over us because we've been healed, and we give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. In Jesus' name.